0: Welcome to Death of the Reader. This is the podcast and it's finally here. Our full length interview with Solari Gentil on the woman in the library was lost due to a technical snafu earlier this year. But we've managed to salvage together the pieces and uh, present the full thing to you here finally at last during Radiothon. If you're unaware, Radiothon is our annual fundraiser where we reach out for your support at the station to SER 107.3 to keep independent media alive here in Sydney, bringing sounds and ideas for Sydney your way all throughout the year. Those details are up on the website, but I'm going to throw you over to me to celebrate the return of Solari Gentil uh, and the return of this audio file to a working form. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you. We are talking Woman in the Library by Solari Gentil and making her grand return to the two S.E.R. studios, the title sponsor of our most recommended novel award each year, as well as the winner of its 2021 intera- iteration is Solari Gentil herself. It is so good to have you back. Welcome to Death of the Reader.
1: I'm shaking in my boots waiting. For you <laughs> I hope you're ready to be surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for the assault. Go ahead, guys. There we go.
0: <laughs> so comparing Crossing the Lines to Woman in the Library, your two metafictional storm systems. The thing that struck me most was what I'd call the definition between the two worlds. In Crossing the Lines, I felt like Maddie and Ned's relationship as authors was easy to define if complicated, but in Woman in the Library, the relationship between our metafictional writer Hannah and her near self-insert character Freddie are at times inexplicable. Where in the process did you decide that this novel somehow could and should be more complicated than Crossing the Lines?
1: (laughs) I, I didn't do that intentionally. Um, so I didn't realize it was. I thought it was a much more straightforward novel than Crossing the Lines. Um, in fact, that's how I've been plugging it. So this is a surprise to me. It,
0: it's. It, I mean, it's really fantastic because I think in some ways it is. It's a lot easier to read mm-hmm. uh, than Crossing the Lines because of how you know engaged with the text. Crossing the Lines forces you to be, which is one of the things I enjoyed most about it. But the weird thing is, is it's not necessarily that it's more complicated as a reader but it's much more complicated for me to explain to other people <laughs> how the book works like in Crossing the Lines I can just say there are two writers they're writing each other and their worlds overlap and I'm like done pitch yes. finished whereas in this I'm like well there's kind of one writer writing another and there's like someone writing emails to her and it's and not this, really this kind of- all on a bus. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, like- it,
1: it was my ambition to defy the elevator pitch yeah so, <laughs> <makes sense. laughs> this is one of those novels but- mission accomplished <laughs> 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 look I think um, uh, can I can I tell you where the idea for this novel came Always. from that might that might explain a bit so I was writing another book set in Boston uh, in in America and because I I wasn't there and I've never been to Boston I have a friend who's an American writer who I was corresponding with at the time and um, now and and Larry is a much better researcher than I am, <laughs> so so he tends to not only just you know uh, get a feeling for the setting or or give me information on landscapes. He was he was sending me menus, he was sending me maps, he was sending me bits of paraphernalia from all over the place in Boston, and you know and footage of the sidewalks and things, and then one day um, he. A murder, there was a murder a couple of blocks from where he was staying, and so he decided that it would be handy for me to know what a crime scene looks like in America. Oh yeah. <laughs> <So friendly. laughs> and, um. yeah, things like you know, police cordons and all the other bits and pieces. So he sent me footage of the murder scene after the body had been taken away, and I received this file in Australia and I opened it. And my husband happened to be standing behind me at the time. This is great. And he said to me, gee, I hope Larry's not killing people so he can do your research.
0: Oh, mm. book made right <laughs> there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and, and I
1: promise he wasn't. He wasn't killing people. And there were no people killed I, in on, the on, making of this book. As, as far as I know. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> I'm sure he's alibied. But, uh, <laughs> I hope so. uh, but as it turns out, I, I thought at that time it was a wonderful idea uh, mm. for a novel. And the challenge at that time... Was to not start writing it immediately and finish the book I was writing. Yeah. Mm. Which I did quickly um, so I could hoik into that. And as you know, I don't plot. I start with an idea and I just start writing. So I just started Dear Hannah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that I wanted to spring off there is you've written two versions of Boston, essentially, one in A Testament of Character and one in Woman in the Library. How does it compare writing those two different eras of the same city? You know, you've spent so long, so many books writing this 1930s version of the world and suddenly to jump into a foreign city in these two, you know, directly companion novels as far as I'm concerned.
1: I, look, I, it, it was a it was a natural progression because I wrote the earlier one first. Mm. Uh, so I wrote Boston in the 1930s first. So when I was standing in Boston today, yeah. I knew the history of the city. So I, I felt a little bit more anchored in Boston. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind, I still haven't been to Boston. I'm hoping to remedy that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a lot of, I, I'm having to work with, uh, my imagination just to get a feel for the city. and of course, whatever Larry uh, sent me in terms. <laughs> of, <laughs> that, <laughs> research. That,
0: that will never mean the same thing, that sentence ever again now that we have the full context there.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm kind of curious. we've talked about like the definition of the characters and the and the setting and that sort of thing. Um, there was a point sort of earlier in this story where I was wondering because you outline our our sort of friend characters. Uh, you got Kane, Wit, and Marigold. Uh, and they're outlined as handsome man, heroic chin, and, and Freud girl. Did did you ever consider that they might have been uh, sort of the, the the writing character and the and the real character? I suppose were, were different characters. They would kind of explore each other. Is that something you kind of came at the
1: angle of, or I think this, I was basically robbing from my own method there. Mm. So it's it's very much the case that and I I think a lot of writers do this, Um, they mind doodle uh, about people that they meet. And in the same way that artists look at people they meet in terms of what they'd be like to paint, uh, writers often look at people they meet in terms of what they'd be like to write and what you'd bring out. And so these were just markers. uh, So before you know someone's name, you just Give them a marker, and so that was basically it. Um, handsome man was handsome, and therefore he got that moniker. Um, heroic chin got that for his heroic chin, and sure. and Freud girl because she happened to be reading, reading Freud. But they could have been anything; she could have given them, you know, Peter, Paul, and Jane well, as well.
2: I find it interesting because I famously on the show I'm terrible with names, and so when I think about characters in a novel, I think ah the detective, the thug, the ringleader of the gang. I don't necessarily think in sort of physical, Mm. visual uh, angles, I guess, but I like to think of them in terms of their role in the story. And
1: exactly, and and at the time that um, Freddie met these people and gave them these monikers, she hadn't decided their role in the story. So Mm. If she had... It might have been the detective, the the girlfriend or uh, there's, you know the boyfriend or whatever. But she was still playing with different ideas of where their role in the story would be. So she just marked them with the first most obvious physical characteristic well, that she'd come Freud, up with.
2: Well, Freud girl's interesting because you could have said tattooed girl. That would have been the most striking physical characteristic. I'm sure there's something there. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but the fact that she more or less sticks as the the psychological analyst for the majority of the story rather than... You know, being reduced to that base trait, well, I guess. Well,
1: Freud girl was sitting on the same side of the table as uh, um, as Freddie, so she could see what Freud girl was reading. Mm. She couldn't see what the others were doing. She could only see their faces. Um, so I suppose that's where Freud girl got that mm. uh, moniker because cool. she wasn't staring at her.
0: Yeah, she's also kind of the odd one out in a way because she is she's studying rather yeah. than being a writer and that kind of aspect of her character is as you were saying like called on so often that it's really useful to kind of have that yeah. for her particularly it's good that she was the one on that side of the table
1: uh, yes yes and and look she was um in a way I suppose that they're, they're all writers to an extent just as you know everybody is a writer to an extent oh. uh oh. <laughs> d- depending on you know whether or not you're published everybody I think is is a writer you're at least writing your own internal dialogue. That was, you know, playing with those degrees of how writerly these people are <laughs> um, was was interesting. But uh, again, it was not something that I thought about before it happened. Mm. It just so happened that Freddie sat down at a table with three other people who were uh, involved in that. And that makes sense in a library. Who else hangs out at libraries? It it
0: also probably (laughs) saved a couple of (laughs) revisions in the edit. You know, just I don't have to go back and change those names. They can stick.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, finding actual names for people is a nightmare. Oh, yeah. It is just the worst thing about writing. (laughs) I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, there's all these other things. You can't just pick a name out of the Air. It's got to be a name that's significantly different from all the other names in the book. It's got to be a name that doesn't isn't so uh, difficult to pronounce that everybody stops whenever they come across it, and it's sort of a speed bump in the text. Um, it's, you know, and then you've got to find last names for people as well. And it's just it's just like a wordle. It's crazy. Can I tell you, though,
2: <laughs> I've been reading uh, some Tolkien, which I know is a bit uh, of a tangent here, but he yeah. has the exact opposite problem because all of his words, are, his names are hard to pronounce. And he actively is trying to make the names similar to each other so you can follow family lineages and like every name means something. So it's kind of the opposite problem where he's trying to put almost too much meaning and too many connections in. Yes. Uh, it's insane.
1: Oh, no. Look, I I remember for ages I didn't realise that Eowyn and Arwen were two different characters. <laughs> I <think laughs> and I was very yeah. confused. I, w- I want to say
2: the win part means star, but I, I'm sure that the Tolkien fans will call me out uh, for <laughs> such a statement. Now, I, the woman in the library. The title harkens back to Agatha Christie's Body in the Library, which is famously uh, an attempt by Christie to excise metafiction from library-related mysteries. Um, was Woman in the Library a direct challenge to that
1: idea? All right, I'm going to make a confession here. <laughs> the Woman in the Library is not what I called it. Oh! <laughs> I just want <laughs> to
0: say, for the record, I put this. I put this question in specifically because I knew this, and I wanted to call out the publishers again. <laughs> what was the original title, Larry? The uh, uh,
1: original title, when I was writing the manuscript, was Letters from Larry. Oh, but of course. Larry's a human being, so I didn't want to call him a psychopath in, you know, to the world, so it became Letters from Leo. I was
2: uh, going to say, it makes more sense to be Letters from Leo, considering the character that does write letters in the yes, novel. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
1: Leo, yeah. So the, the character who I had been basing on my friend Larry became Leo, mm. and I had called it Letters from Leo. The American... Publishers um, now, the way they do things is quite different. <laughs> they focus
0: Shanghai group. Shanghai
1: secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's not talk about that.
0: <laughs>
1: but, but they but they focus group. Um, so they get a they get a whole stack of titles. So this title came out on top after. Several focus groups uh, and was selected from a 100 different possible titles wow. for this book.
2: I mean, it's impressive the amount of effort they go to yeah. to change yeah. a title.
1: It is. And, and look, you <laughs> know, I, I, I kind of look at titles the same way I look at covers. They're just clothes. I'm in charge of the what's inside. Um, and as long as they don't mess too much with what's inside, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. To
2: I agree. was curious, actually. You mentioned it was called Letters from Leo or, and or Larry, yeah. um, but they're emails is yes. that something else
1: that was changed? Because that, that was probably – no, 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 was it was it, always uh, emails. But oh, I always it. think of an email as a letter. I'm old school. Yeah. So when, even when I email someone, I'm yeah. saying I'm writing this letter because mm. uh, it's it's still a letter. It's just got a different mode of delivery.
2: I definitely thought there were letters when I first started reading. That shows <laughs> maybe I'm old-fashioned. Maybe I'm an old man in, in a young man's body. Oh, but look, it
1: would have taken way too long if they'd been exchanged, especially with. Oh, the- goodness. when – post-became in COVID.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe that's a twist that it, it takes a full two years for this to <laughs> well, kind of unravel. Years. <laughs> ten, years. Ten, ten years. Ten years. later, Leo, what are you doing here?
0: <laughs> Et cetera. I, I, do, I do have to say, though, Herds and I have just read uh, The Body in the Library yeah. before Woman in the Library, though the episodes are backwards, and you've still managed to put in just enough... <laughs> Tangentially related to the body in the library, that we're
1: like, is this a reference the whole way through? <laughs> well, you know, I, I find that happens quite often. Things yeah. that you don't intend just happen by by chance, yeah. by accident. Yeah. It seems to be that the universe is operating there somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious about the actual solution to the to the mystery. Has some similarities, let's say, to the to the body in the library. Is that that's all intentional, I assume? Is that I haven't
1: read The Body in the Library.
2: You haven't read The
1: Body uh, I've no, really. read, a, read a lot of Christie, but that's one I have he not read. This,
2: didn't he? he knew this. <laughs> he knew this. He's psychic. I do my research. <laughs> it's so interesting.
1: <laughs> so so now I'll have to go and read it. <laughs> you
2: should. You definitely should. I'd recommend it. I think you'd enjoy your own book more.
1: Yeah.
0: In in some ways, you've cleverly made the novel immune to criticism, uh, since the premise of the story is that we're reading a draft as we mm. mentioned and seeing an early reader's critique as we go, are your drafts as neat as Hannah's? Uh, yes. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, that, that was the draft, the, the, the book. I, I tend to be close <laughs> to one draft. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I tend to be one draft and then it goes to sort of Line or at yeah. it, uh, but very rarely does anything structural change, mm. and and that just that's just the way I write. It's not not particularly clever. It's just that I'm a I was a lawyer, so part of the apprenticeship of being a lawyer is that they teach you to choose your words precisely mm. the first time, and you only say exactly what you mean. So that means that my drafts tend to be very, very clean.
0: I mean, it shows. If this is, if this is as close to a first draft as you're alleging, it's like in, incredible how cohesive it is. <laughs> and I'm suddenly even more impressed than I already was with your back it, I,
1: It is just the way I write. I, I, some would say I'm just a lazy writer. I can't be bothered rewriting. <laughs> <laughs> Here, this is it. I'm done. I'm finished. <laughs> uh, but generally, you know, I press send on a manuscript by the day I finish writing it. Mm. You know, I'll do a quick read through and send. Um, There's not really a lot of rewriting that goes on. But, again, that just is the way I write because I give over to whatever the the story is.
2: Honestly, I I wish I had that confidence to just hit send. You have no idea how many emails I send where I'm like, let me just – Go over it one more time. Wait, one more time. So, "No, I can't send yet." Oops, I've accidentally hit send. Was that the right email? Oh no! I've, I'm I've like that with on,
1: you know. I'm like that with Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrified of Twitter. You're going, oh is. my god! What if I make a spelling mistake? Oh, what if I left out the word? Or oh, you know, I have this terrible habit of. Replacing the word now with the word not. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So when you're typing. And so you're saying exactly the opposite of what you mean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and, and on Twitter, that terrifies me.
2: Yeah, Twitter is a horrifying place. Now – because of the draft nature of, of your writing and of Freddie's world, we kind of, we, we take a long time to learn a lot of things about the the cast, you know, the core cast of most of the, the four main characters of this world. Um, and it's a pretty small cast compared to many classic mysteries. Lord knows I love to complain about extravagant cla- uh, casts. <laughs> Anyway, one moment early on that I actually really enjoy was Marigold kind of startling Freddie with her knowledge of of finance, you know, combined with her psychology uh, interest. Now, how much did these characters surprise you over the course of writing them?
1: Oh, completely. Because because I don't plot them. I don't know who they are. I just keep digging. And to me, it feels very much like they just reveal bits of themselves. Mm. I didn't ever have any notion of who Marigold was, except that I saw that she was tattooed. And then it just evolved. It just peeled away with Mm. each one. And it feels very much like that with the writing, that with each paragraph, with each chapter, you're peeling away and unearthing more. Um, Kind of think... And I know that the book is full of analogies about how people write, but I kind of think my writing is a bit like sculpting. The story's there, I just have to dig it out of the mm. clay. I,
0: I do kind of like the idea as well. We, we, Absolutely loved to see the return of book club questions at the back of this book, including one, including one talking about how you know presenting someone uh, as a as a member of a cast of society as a you know certain racial division uh, can change our perspective and is that a good or bad thing? How do we talk about that? That aspect of being a pantser as a writer, how does that change anything for you as a writer? Because essentially, you know, you've written these characters, and somewhere along the line, you discover that. Uh, one of the characters is black, for example, does that actually change anything?
1: So I think I do this strangely because I'm an immigrant um, and so you, your listeners can't see, but I'm brown. And I grew up in Australia and I wasn't really aware of it. I knew I was brown, but I was... For for many, many years, my awareness was of having brown skin was similar to having brown hair. Mm. It was irrelevant to anything. Um, And so I wasn't really aware of the difference of it. So when I write and I think of characters, I I find myself completely unaware of their skin colour. Even though I can see them, I'm almost unaware of whether they're white or black or, you know, Asian. And that evolved, uh, that particular... Uh, discussion or issue or sub theme in the in the novel evolved out of a conversation I had with Larry when we were discussing where people lived mm. mm-hmm. um, and he was explaining to me that certain addresses were black in America and certain addresses were white yeah and I found that quite interesting as a mm. writer that because what that is is a is a statement of absolutes what you're saying when you say an address is black is you're saying there has never been a white person who's lived there. It's impossible for a white person to live there. Mm. And that's ridiculous. You know, it doesn't matter how uh, prevalent an ethnicity is in a certain area. It's always possible for someone different to move in. Uh, and, And when I raise it in terms of the discussions between Hannah and Leo. It's not to answer questions. It's Mm. just to make people aware of the fact that those questions exist Mm. um, and those assumptions exist. And sometimes it's awareness of the assumption that's all the answer you need.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the, the way that you've told that particular story there reminds me of when my parents were living in Memphis, Tennessee, Uh, they moved into what was a I think like kind of newly gentrified area which naturally means that there was still kind of a black community Mm -hmm. there that was being pushed out a little bit so my mother you know would go to the local park and at some point a black woman came up to her and was like you can't be here like we kind of need this space and if white people start coming in like it takes it away from us just because that was the nature of that town at that time and it's Mm -hmm. like it's so unfortunate, but it's something that's so like inseparable from telling a story in America in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and America, you know, this, uh, one of the things that I looked forward to in this novel is the ability to discuss the differences between Australia and America in a way that isn't really obvious, mm. isn't, you know, hitting someone over the head and uh, turning into a polemic. And and we have very different sort of racial problems or, or the racial problems manifest in different ways. Um, and w- America seems to be quite rigid about these rules, and even people who don't manifest as particularly racist seem to be very aware of the rules and follow them. Mm. And I found that interesting and it was just a discussion that I wanted to have in the novel. I don't have the answer for it. It's It's been a problem of hundreds of years in the making. It's not going to be, you know, one writer from New South Wales who comes up with a solution.
2: Uh, if but- only. <laughs> if it was so simple, we'd, we'd live in a paradise. Now, I, I think it's very interesting that obviously Leo is a, an excellent vessel for these sorts of discussions. You talk about, you know, race, you talk about protests against the government you talk about the pandemic you talk about environmental issues all of these things i guess i'm 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 curious are these the sorts of discussions that you have with uh, with with other people who have read your book or editors? They're like, why don't you include these issues in your book? Is that a discussion no, no, you've had th- th- these these or? are
1: exactly the kind of discussions that I would have with Larry, with Larry? Okay. and Welcome with from Larry. yeah, uh, well, not just Larry, but with <laughs> you know, it's a kind of discussion. So I, I have a lot of correspondence with readers, so they're um because um, a lot of my readers, not not particularly Larry, but a lot of my readers tend to be older gentlemen. Uh, who are fans of the Rowley series, and they are great correspondents. And so they write to me. Um, and I'm um, sort of old enough that if someone will write to me or someone writes to me, I have to write back. I can't not. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I, I find myself in long and very rewarding correspondence mm. with these people. And those are the kind of issues that just come up when you're talking about uh, things because when you're writing a letter or writing an email if you're actually going to the trouble of typing something you don't talk about the weather because you know you have to type it <laughs> um, so you know if you're going to type something you tend to you tend to actually hone down into bigger or more uh, or deeper issues than the kind of small talk you have if you just run into someone in the street. So those, those are the kind of conversations. That, so I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do anything tricky. That's, okay. That was just taken from my experience of life. That's, those are the kind of letters that uh, go in and out of my inbox.
0: Can I say, can I say somewhat tangentially, the first time I tried emailing a Japanese publisher, I got an email back that was like, excuse me, this is not how you send emails to Japan. You have to talk about the weather first to the season first, how nice your day was. And then you can get into the business side of things. And I'm like, what? Why?
1: Australians <laughs> tend to be very particular with straight to the business. I know, I notice even with uh, my correspondence, uh, with the Americans, with my publishers and publicists there—they always start with "We hope you're having a great day." Yeah. Hope you're well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even if it's like the third email of the day, uh, and it's—it's <laughs> it's just this really polite opening. Mm. Um, whereas Australians just tend to get straight to the point. Oh, yeah. barely, they barely—they don't do "dear Solari." It's just you know <laughs> you need to fix this.
0: <laughs> I mean, speaking of other readers. I I need to know, did you at any point give a draft reader of this book just Freddie's story or just Leo's emails? And if so, how did they fare?
1: No, I didn't. (laughs) Because they didn't ever exist separately. Um, So they were written in the order that you see them in the book. Um, So it was very much... The one thing I did do which was interesting, I sent the... The draft to Larry. Oh, and this was the change in this. So even though it is a one draft, I sent the draft to Larry. Larry commented on that very first draft, and I just put them into Leo's letters. His comments.
0: Is he, he going to cut of the profits on the book? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't get any ideas, Larry. Oh, <laughs>
2: Larry, I, he's the real victim in this story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a wonderful writer himself, actually. So he <laughs> he could. So having that correspondence was with someone who understood what it was to write. Mm. Uh, and that's why I did want to uh, make Leo a writer as well because there's a, a particular sort of understanding and relationship that goes with, you know, people who who try and turn this into its whatever dubious profession
2: it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. there is something really positive about the book that, I mean, Leo's a writer, which, you know, whatever we want to say about Leo. But all the other – We'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to Leo. Like all of the core cast of characters are kind of – in. like some of them are writing already, but I don't think they're all writing – they're not all writing mystery books. And so, of course, when Freddie comes in and says, I'm writing mystery books, they're really exciting. And like there's been a murder. There's been a scream. And everybody starts using the scream and their own past traumas and their lived-in experiences and everything to like create their own worlds and their own characters – and there's a really lovely line where, but um, is talking about Isaac and the sort how he can adapt that into a murder mystery. And um, uh, Freddie says, you know, you should put yourself in. He's like, oh, well, I can't put myself in the book. She says, oh, well, you should put in like a dog or something that Isaac looks after. He's <laughs> like, well, I can't put myself in as a sad, like, dirty street dog. She's like, why not? Like, why couldn't you do that? And I think to the point, I think it's very uh, a very empowering message that anyone can write. Uh, at the end of the day, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so figuring out how much that we kind of trust these these writer friends, Freddy's friends, is one of the most compelling parts of the traditional side of the mystery to me. Um, and it's definitely more an avarice of modern crime fiction. Um, what is it about people who trust us, sort of betraying us, that is so fictionally compelling when it can be so debilitating in real life?
1: I think, um, in some ways, we kind of immunise ourselves, uh, to use a sort of a COVID analogy. <laughs> Thank we, you. <laughs> to we immunise ourselves to betrayal by reading about it, um, so or we think we do. Uh, we we think that if we read about it and we understand the betrayal, somehow we can distinguish ourselves from that. And sometimes when we this when when we're reading, say Freddie's story, um, and and what occurred there. You know, readers can look at it and think, oh, well, she's being naive here or I'd never do that. And somehow internally to our own psyche, I think it it gives us comfort that we'll never be in that position because we'll never make those decisions and we'll never be that naive. Yeah. When in reality, we're far more naive. When 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 we want to trust people, we trust people.
2: Well, it's also a kind of an experiment, isn't it? Whenever you read a murder mystery book, because I started this and you pose, well, Hannah poses, well, actually Freddie poses Anyway, everybody poses the idea that that Marigold. <laughs> Let's just having a bit of a, <laughs> a blue screen of death over there. But every, all of the writer characters pose the idea that uh, Marigold is like the heart of the story. That Freud girl is the heart of the story. And to me, to say nothing of where her character goes or where she ends up and the actions that she takes, but I thought this is a clear flag that I can trust this character. There is no way that I could possibly suspect her, even though she's, like, stalking people around <laughs> and she's covered in tattoos like a gang leader. Like, you know, <laughs> she's got a dead ballerina on her back or sleeping or whatever, you know. Like, there's all these little things you can go back and forth on. But for me, I saw the main character say, this girl is the heart of my novel, and I thought... I can't disbelieve that. I have absolute faith in this woman.
1: Oh, well, isn't that lovely? That's very mm. naive. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Look, that's how it is. <laughs> because Freddie, Freddie at that time <laughs> d- didn't really know Marigold. No, not at all. And, and, and it could have just been the old uh, bait and switch. Mm. Um, and I would have normal if I was reading it, I would have thought, oh, Oh, there's something dicey about Marigold. Yeah. <laughs> she's the heart of the story. There, she's going. You know, they going to break be it. The, b- the black heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah they're going to break think,
2: it. I mean, This is definitely telling of how I like to approach murder mysteries, <laughs> I, I, or rather, how I approach people in general. I try to assume the best and then deal with the worst. But you know, that's just how it is. Well, um.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I, look, I, I think I, I find myself doing that as well. But there's there's the lawyer in me okay. <laughs> that says everyone can be a murderer.
2: Well, that's the <laughs> Fun of, of murder <laughs> mysteries. Again, we brought ourselves full circle. I, I have to ask, there was there is a theory. Can we we'll get into this flex? We're oh, ready? Herds,
0: you, you're talking about your, your wild theory. Are we ready for the wild okay, theory? Right, I, I, I'm still not sure. I, I haven't been able to wrap my head around this quite yet. So here's yet. the thing. Okay. I'm really, hold on, before you say I'm really excited for Solari to hear this and go, oh, yes, Herds, of course, that's exactly what it is. And I'll be like, oh, <laughs> no, ah, foiled again. Uh-huh. Anyway, carry So okay, on. here's Kevin. the thing. I have this absurd theory because
2: we're ta- lots of characters talk about murder in the novel. Lots of characters talk about Carolyn and the scream and all these recorded screams and things. And so I came to the table with a theory that perhaps Carolyn isn't even dead because the scream could be recorded and the only, like only one character has actually seen the body so I have to ask: Is there what? Like, what proof do we even have that Carolyn is dead?
1: Well, the police. What do you mean? <laughs> Which
0: policeman?
1: Which well, poli- no, no particular policeman, but the FBI was there, and they were interviewing people. Surely they'd That's crazy. They'd need a body. <laughs> but do that? they
0: actually
2: say she's been murdered? I don't think she. No. Does. Well, look, it, it
1: is a possibility that would have been. Uh-huh. A, a really interesting twist. I think so. <laughs> it, it, <there's>, um,
0: <laughs> Second draft it is. Yes, let's go. It
1: would, it would have been a really interesting twist except for the fact that, you know, in the beginning nobody could find the body. It's true. Um, so the, the story only moved forward because a body was found. Mm. Um, so you would have a problem of how you get past that.
2: Well, to, to be fair, they only say we found a body. They don't say the body had been murdered. There is no explicit mention of murder until you get to a discussion between the detective characters. Look, I'm just pointing out
1: except, there was wiggle room. Ex- <laughs> except that the, the body was hidden under a table. Maybe she's just It's like the ballerina. Is she dead or is she sleeping? It's a great question. Yeah, well, strawberry look, jam in there. Come yeah, on. Certainly it is. It could have been, I could have gone that way. (laughs) If it had occurred to me at the time, I might have gone that way. I'm just saying there's a better (laughs) novel hidden here. I'm not saying
2: that I I am a literary genius, but maybe I could be the next Larry. Speaking
0: of bad ideas, herds, (laughs) Leo. I wanted to say I felt a certain level of discomfort reading Leo since I could sort of see myself saying a number of the things that he says, though I hasten to add that the majority of it creeps me the hell out but also because there was every chance that before the pandemic I ended up a Bostonite I'd even had grand ideas where Poison Pen Press you know started doing the press cycle for this book like oh maybe I could record this episode from the Boston Public Library if I did still end up being there I guess how real of a fan do you think Leo can be and how much of a concern is there for authors with the access of the internet that parasocial relationships with an audience could go sour?
1: Oh, look, it it, it happens. Um, and certainly, you know, I think most um, writers have a tale of uh, a correspondence or a relationship with a fan that they had to distance themselves from mm-hmm. uh, at some point. And, and it's because, you know, when someone reads your book, they are allowing you into their head for hours and they feel like they know you as a result because they're, they're hearing your voice or your, your literary voice in their head. And after spending that much time with you in a very sort of confined, in the confined space of their head, uh, they feel like there is a relationship and a bond. And you want that. As a writer, that's what you want. You want to create that, that sense of intimacy with your readers. There is the rare reader that takes that to the next level um, and doesn't draw bra- boundaries, with that, so you know, I I have had that. I have had occasional readers turn up at my house, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. and 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 they haven't been dangerous. Yeah. But there is, and it's hard because you want to be open, you want to be accessible, and you want to be friendly. Mm. Uh, but there's a point at which it become if you feel like you're being backed against a wall.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially I feel like that'd be different living further out in the country, as you do. They as have to probably, make an effort to yeah, get to me. Yeah, they have to make an they effort. Have to find you, yeah.
1: Yeah, they have to. Yeah, they have to find. Well, you Just know, trek
2: through the bushland, fight off the wallabies. Th- you th- know. The
1: thing is, I live in a small country town. So if you ask <laughs> anyone in Ballarat where the Solari live, they'll point you there. <laughs> and So that that's that. It's not that difficult to find me, but. Ballo is fairly out of the way, and so it's interesting. And you don't want to you don't want to come off as a diva or someone who's particularly you know uh, unfriendly because ninety nine percent of even the people who turn up at your house are there because they just really admire your work, and and they have just got a little bit excited, um, and they happen to be passing and they thought oh well we'll just have a look and see if Solari's home. I'm mm. sure she'd. Love to have a cup of tea, (laughs) and uh, and and that's 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 fine, except for the fact that I work in my pajamas, and (laughs) and it's always nerve wracking for me when people knock on the door. (laughs) But, uh, um, But yeah, but every now and then there is a a reader or a fan that has their own issues, and somehow teleports you and your novel. Into those issues, mm-hmm. um, and you've just got to be careful. But it's like anything; I suppose that can happen to anyone. You can be a bus driver, and there could be a passenger who catches your route every day, who develops a fixation with you. Um, it's just that we go out to so many more people.
2: I mean, I was going to say such a huge part of of that relationship, I guess, is being human as well. As yeah. you say, like you say it in the way of I don't want to appear like a diva, but really, it's just about appearing like a regular human being. Yeah. Um, so that relationship doesn't really get blown out of proportion and all that sort of thing. Um, and it sounds like you you don't need to have watched the movie Misery uh, multiple times in preparation for this because <laughs> you've lived that experience. Yeah.
1: Look, uh, I, I love the movie Misery. <laughs> I actually made my sons uh, watch the movie Misery because I wanted them to see a sort of a low-tech uh, yeah. movie that really had punch sure and right. really had yeah, creep. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yeah. It And, and honestly, you know, when, um, when you – When the Americans take on the book, they're always looking for comp titles. That seems to be the thing these days. And, of course, this sort of book, it's really hard to find a comp title. And the only one I could think of was Misery. (laughs) And and that's not completely, but, you know, it does comp to at least half the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: I think here we'll get into full spoilers. Let's get into things proper. One thing that makes Leo so painful in both layers of reality is his inability to see context, particularly when his email self starts talking about the entertainment value of global disasters that have killed millions or joining protests just to get some violence in there and like how convenient must make the act of murder in general. Why
1: is context so important to entertainment, Solari? (laughs) 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 <laughs> Look, I, I think the thing with Leo is that all of those things that he says mm-hmm. could be said face to face as a joke and it would just be black humour. But when it's written, it's a different thing. There's an element of serious creep in it. So mm-hmm. I think I think the thing that I realised through writing this novel is that there is a difference between the written word and the spoken word, there is a certain sort of disclaimer that the the spoken word can embody that the written word can't. And because it is written, it's more thoughtful. So people say stupid things all the time and they make bad jokes that are inappropriate all the time. But when it's spoken, it's less... Well, you don't have evidence of it three days later... But with a written word, you have it there. So I think, you know, I don't know that context is really – oh, no, I suppose I, – I don't know that it's so much context as medium that's the issue there. I
2: feel like it's – because you say it's because there'll be evidence, but, like, you could you could have an audio recording of someone screaming or someone yep. saying the F word or whatever, yep. and you would have evidence of that. I feel like it's the, spun, the spun, spontaneity. Yes.
1: Spontaneity. Spontaneity. Thank you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I promise you, I read lots of books. I'm very smart. The spontaneity of it, right? If you say like some awful comment about the pandemic, it passes, you know, the words leave your lips Somebody says that's really awkward and you move on. But if somebody sends you an email, and especially if the person on the other yeah. end that has to spend time picking through the email and responding, because I know when I write an email, again, I'm very paranoid about emails, but like I look at each individual section, each paragraph of the email that's been sent, and I want to reply to everything that they've said so that they don't feel like I've missed something. I don't have to go back to them. I can just send one email and it's gone. And I assume that that's how. Uh, Hannah is writing her emails more or less. So, well, you
1: never see Hannah's emails,
2: do you? Well, you don't. And this is definitely something I thought about when I was making my theories about this novel. But it is interesting. Well,
1: what, what you see instead of Hannah's emails, you see, see the chapter that she writes yes. in, in response. And, and I think what I was trying to say in that is that the, the most powerful way that writers speak is in the stories they write. Um, so it's not so much what she responded to in the emails, but it's what she wrote in response that, that makes the difference. But you're right about the spontaneity and the picking over. And certainly that's why mediums like Twitter uh, have got people into so much trouble. Uh, because it's not a conversation. Uh, you know, the, people like to say that Twitter is a conversation between, you know, you and the world, but it's not a conversation. A conversation is a passing thing. Twitter is a record. Uh, it's a record of every time you misspoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, same with Facebook. I don't mean to pick on Twitter here, but every – every. Uh, same Twitter with Flex
0: and Herds on Death of the Reader. Yeah. Sure. true. Check us out. (laughs) (laughs) Get the traffic to our Twitter page, please.
1: Um. But it's yeah, it's 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 all of that, and I I know exactly what you mean about the emails. When I write an email and or when I write uh, anything on Twitter, those occasions that I do, or write anything on Facebook, I read it over to make sure that it can't be taken the wrong way. That no matter you know that I have expressed it completely. Uh, in a way that's so watertight that it cannot be misinterpreted. Yeah. Because that's where those mediums go crazy. It makes me
2: feel like the sort of through line here is that Leo is writing an email which should not be spontaneous, but his, like, surface thoughts or his you know the emotions that he's feeling are leaking into the emails of course, the further the story goes on well
1: he's writing to a right? friend and yeah. you do that with friends you you let that because they they treat that <sighs> As a, as a conversation. He thinks he's writing to a friend. And he is for the, mo- for the well, beginning. Well,
2: he thinks it's a friendship all the way through, or perhaps something yeah, more. Something whereas more. Hannah, of course, goes in the opposite direction.
1: You know so. what's really interesting about this? I've had beta readers read it. And some have been writers and some haven't been. Hmm. Those who weren't writers loved Leo in the beginning. They thought he was just lovely and, oh, and giving him. and generous and funny. And Every writer who read it hated him from page one.
2: Yep. Can I tell you, we have a list of characters. You know how I said, like, I don't remember character names, so I'll just remember a thing about them. Leo, God, I hate him. (laughs) That was his description because I didn't think anything else was significant at all.
0: Though I I will say, and I said this to Herds in our first first episode, that I I heard an audible click in my head when Leo first started bemoaning diversity quotas when his manuscripts get rejected. I'm like... Is the spiral.
1: <laughs>
0: Truly really terrible human being.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, though, though there are human beings who in weak moments will say things like that.
0: Absolutely.
1: And they aren't terrible. They're mm. just weak at that time. Yeah. Or bitter at that time. Mm. And so I think um I know I have a I have a dear friend who uh we've been friends since we were 12, and she gets my first draft, always. And she loved Leo. And she, in fact, said to me, "It was that her comment on the manuscript was that she felt it was a bit of a shock when he suddenly turned into a bad guy. She didn't see it coming." Mm. And then uh, this, I had also handed the the manuscript to my friend uh, Dan O'Malley, and he hated Leo from the minute. <laughs> and then he said, "He's you know, forget about murdering people. He's telling her how to write." <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought that was. Uh, an interesting difference. I didn't. I didn't set out to make Leo unlikable in the beginning. I, I kind of was hoping that people would actually not suspect him from page one as as being evil. But clearly, <laughs> telling someone how to write is unforgivable. Yeah.
2: Well, it becomes more uh, explicit about his directions in her writing as it goes on, and I mm. think that. As much as I hate Leo, it is kind of tragic that he doesn't actually get to see at the end of the book. Yeah, at, at the time of the final email, at least he says, "Well, it's such a shame. I'm in. I'm in prison." but I hope that you really enjoyed showing us how awful Cain was and, you know, all of these things that he's like, obviously this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is what I know you've done because we're on the same wavelength, right? Like yeah. all that stuff.
0: Um, well,
1: look, I just hope he's never paroled and then reads the end of the book because <laughs> Hannah's be in bad. a lot of trouble. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of the end of the book, yes. I say whilst carefully trying to avoid spoiling it, Crossing the Line's ending felt fairly concrete. Despite being open-ended, there was a sense that you knew exactly what came next, which I don't get as much from the woman in the library. There's perhaps a horrible threat in the ending, perhaps a warm welcome, but almost no way to tell if it's danger is real given the separation between email Leo and Freddie's neighbour Leo. What does Leo's rival at the end mean to you? Or is the question the point?
1: It is. Well, a bit of both. In the end, I wanted Leo's arrival to weave the two stories together. So they were basically going along in parallel. And at that point, they, and, and at some point they start to merge. And that's the point at which they, they become one. In a way, um, it, it's funny, I, uh, so many people have interpreted this differently. My, my sister, uh, came to the end of that where Leo comes in and says, you know, I thought you might need my help. Mm. And she thought that that was a statement of, yeah, in the end, Leo was just trying to help her. <laughs> and, and it was it was Hannah's acknowledgement of the fact that Leo was just trying to help her throughout. It's so interesting. Which is, which is interesting, isn't it? In the end, I, I th- this is truly a metafiction. And so realistically, whoever the mystery is, points its finger at as the killer, the real killer is always the writer. Mm. And in in this context, Hannah is helped by Leo. Oh uh, sorry,
0: I've got a phone call coming in for the F this isn't about you, the FBI is on, on the line, Solari. <laughs> <to> <laughs> <laughs> the meta fiction FBI.
1: And uh, and yeah, so it's sort of it sort of plats all of that together. The 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 notion was just to remind the reader that this novel was operating Mm. on two levels.
0: Yeah, I think it's one really interesting thing because I'll I'll be entirely honest, when I got to the ending of the book, I was like, oh, really? (laughs) But the more I've thought about it, the more I've been like, that is such a good way to wrap up their relationship by you know, leaving it in a way that so many readers, I think, could interpret that so differently, but it still reflects that core nature of Leo and Hannah, you know, talking back to each other. No matter how you view their relationship, that part of their relationship is in the way you view the ending. And there's something so tidy about the way you were able to
1: execute that. (laughs) Well, I think in a way, you know, as writers, we we are influenced by Mm. people, yeah. So whether Hannah liked it or not, Leo had worked his way into her story, mm. Mm. like the real Leo, not the Leo that she had intended to contain. The real Leo had worked his way into her story, and I and I thought that was just truthful. It's what happens, regardless of you know what we think we're writing. Mm. Uh, there's often other things at play.
2: Mm-hmm. I like. To, to give my own interpretation because okay, I can't hold myself back. I'm sorry. I, I like the idea, the way that I kind of came away from this novel because look, I looked, I like to see the positive in things, is the idea that even though Leo was horrible and I hate him, uh, she managed to take this horrible person and use him as a force for good effectively because the implication is that, like, Leo's going to help them get past the reporters at the end. He's going to oh, like did to you it. think
1: that? I yeah. thought he was going to kill them in the elevator. Really? <laughs> I, I thought that was a possibility. I thought it was creepy. Yes, I mean, this is creepy. I thought it like, was really creepy to be trapped in an elevator with this guy. I mean, guys. it is creepy,
0: I, but. I clearly got way too hung up on the question here. I was like, oh, <laughs> any of them could happen.
1: Any of them. And, and yeah. r- r- truly any of them. That could be an inter- I- I, Look,
0: I just, I like the idea that even
2: though the real Leo is awful and we hate him, the Leo in the book can be a slightly more positive change. That's my, that's my dream, and don't crush it so long.
1: I should introduce yeah. you to my sister. She clearly has that kind of Let's Disney spin on it. And look, and-, and <laughs> Disney
2: <laughs> sure, I love Disney. That's my whole, my whole brand image. Herds, the Disney fan. I can show you the world. Don't get us copyright struck. That's okay. That's all we got.
1: But I think, um, you know, look, and again, it is, I really like the idea of readers walking away thinking, Mm. And and thinking about the story and coming up with their own next chapter. Yeah. Um, when I was a child, before I ever wrote, mm. that's how I started writing. I used to watch my favourite television shows in a way and I call it writing but it was just daydreaming and I'd make up my own episodes in mm. my head and at the time I just thought I was a weird kid who liked de- daydreaming about Battlestar Galactica <laughs> but, <Nice. laughs> but, but I think it was in a funny way a sort of a training for what I do mm. um, using taking characters that I loved and just making up other stories. Um, so I, I, I did this uh, well, the, the ending, I hope, allows the reader a little bit of scope because what we really want to do is we want to engage the reader enough that they care enough to imagine their own ending or they they care enough to decide whether that ending is is creepy and dangerous or is... A positive butterflies s- and moment. sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It could be either. And maybe there's a wedding on the horizon. I don't know. Hopefully. Oh I know. I know. Um, but each I mean, to his own. Yeah, right. <laughs> each to his around. own, Felix. Go
0: <laughs> I guess I guess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Freddie did nearly date one murderer. <laughs> That's true. What's another? What's one more murderer? for a book. Solari, it has been wonderful having you back on Death of the Reader and I have been delighted reading this novel and getting to discuss it with you. So thank you so much for joining us. Finally in person again. Yes.
1: Yes, isn't it wonderful? And it's always a pleasure, guys. I'll come back anytime, even without a book.
0: (laughs) We (laughs) we promise we won't show up to your house looking to honor (laughs) that request. I was going to say, we show up
2: to your house with all our microphones and audio equipment. We're like, all right. Let's just let's just live broadcast from your house. That seems fine.
0: That's the day we get written in as the murder victims in Solari's next
2: book.
1: You actually would be welcome.
2: Really? (laughs) All right, let's pack up. We're going. Going for a road trip. Let's go.
1: You want to broadcast from Batlow? (laughs) We barely get television reception.
2: That's fun. We'll figure it out. It's probably good. A bit of a, bit of a radio detox. Yeah, a bit of a, an old school lo-fi sort yeah. of broadcast. I don't know. I don't you
0: know. Time have to do it over AM.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, I keep dragging mystery writers to Batlow. They have their... a a steady diet of people Solari has met and drags to the Literary Institute. (laughs) (laughs) To be locked away, I hope.
0: Um, Just a long line of truffles on the road into town.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you for joining
0: us here on the podcast for this exclusive recovered episode of Solari Gentil talking about the woman in the library back from the grave. Uh, I will be moving this episode of the podcast back to its original intended position shortly after it has come out. So if you are... see it disappear further down your podcast feed don't worry it is still there just back closer to the book when we had originally intended to publish it before aforementioned technical snafu while i'm here though we are publishing this at the time of radiothon our station's birthday and annual fundraiser and if you want to help support independent media sounds and ideas for sydney we will have that link in the podcast details so that you can uh, help keep the show alive help keep our home station arriving and we love your support thank you once again to solari for joining us on the show and for ultimo press for an early copy of the book this is death of the reader i'm out of here